So I'm interviewing a spar and she said, what's your name again, dear? And I said, Denise Frasino. And I thought, oh, heavens, you know, she's elderly and she probably isn't going to remember anything. And she said, oh, that's right, Joe Frasino. And I said, yes, he was my father. And he wrote for the newspaper. And she said, oh, no, no, dear. And she pointed and I turned around and I'm sitting under a painting of my grandfather's that we did not know existed. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. Today, I am in a bit of a different place. And uh, so if you're hearing a bit of a sound in the background, that is the Pacific Ocean. Not a whole lot I can or want to do to sort of drown that out. Actually, I'm liking it. But more importantly, I have a very interesting guest today. Her name is Denise Frasino. And she is the author of a series of books called The Orchids Trilogy. She is a writer, director, producer of various film and video, and has been an actress for many, many years. Hi, Denise. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. Hello, Renita. And I'm jealous that you have the waves in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I just wanted to mention that up front in case people were wondering what is that weird noise, but I'm loving the weird noise. So, (laughs) Denise, tell us about the Orchids trilogy. What is it? Why did you write it? Tell us anything you'd like. Thank you for asking that. Yes, over 10 years ago, I started interviewing men and women from World War II, and I've collected over 50 interviews, mostly of veterans from that time period, And what I'm doing with their stories and what they've shared with me is I'm weaving it into these three books about World War II. When I was up in the San Juan Islands, up in Washington State on the Canadian border, I used to work up there. And a friend of mine told me that his grandmother had been a rum runner. Well, I came home and I told my father, who was a journalist, and and he said, write the book. So when Hmm. I was up researching for Whiskey Cove, This man told me, oh, honey, that's nothing, because it was about prohibition. I said, what do you mean it's nothing? I was so excited to be writing and researching prohibition. And he told me a story that there was a young woman at the University of Washington. This was pre-World War II. And she was fluent in Japanese, but she was Caucasian. Well, the FBI learned about her, took her, dressed her like a hooker, put her in the bars of San Francisco, to help them determine where the Japanese spies were up and down the West Coast. So that storyline sat with me for years. And then I started these interviews. And so what I'm doing is it's about the spies. They were actually espionage. Well, you know, spies, according to the Bible, the two oldest occupations are hookers and spies. My goodness. So, So... I took that storyline and I started my research and I have all of the interviews. 
that's why I have completed two of the three books and I'm working on the third one now. Long journey. Long journey, Denise, but this is fascinating. I mean, everything that you have said, starting with that anecdote about the lady who was dressed as a hooker and put into the bars of San Francisco, I was going to begin how you first became interested in the topic of World War II, but I have a hunch that this is where it started with these amazing stories of these women who were involved, even if they weren't fighting in the war, they were, there's definitely some kind of fighting going on, right? (laughs) Absolutely. That's a really good point, because throughout the war, everyone worked, everyone had some contribution, whether it was collecting the tin that was not being used to be, you know, utilized in the army somehow. Did you know that one of the most fascinating things that I've learned was fat, fat from the meat that was mm-hmm. cut off, was taken and melted down for bullets. One mm-hmm. of my mother's best friend's father became extremely wealthy by going around and picking up the fat that was being cast aside and then driving it down to the army, basically the army outposts, and they were purchasing it from him. Right. And they were melting it down to use that. So everyone had some form of ingenuity, and they were all contributing as they could, whether it was wrapping bandages, doing whatever they could on the home front, as well as working overseas. One of the women I interviewed was in the army as a nurse, and she landed right after D-Day. And she said that Patton had always promised her a hospital, and she never had one the entire time she was over there working with the men. And this was during the Battle of the Bulge, the winter of 1944, the coldest winter during the war. And a lot of the men's feet actually froze because Mm. they were marching in the snow. Good heavens, I can't even begin to tell you all the little anecdotes I have learned along my path. I actually was aware of that particular point about the fat being used in bullets because I grew up studying that in Indian history books as a child in India. All of World War II and everything before that as well, the Indian soldiers actually worked for the British Army and there was a lot of use of animal fat, usually pig fat. So that part I was aware of. But I have to ask, even though I understand from our conversations previously that your inspiration has really come from your father, who was stationed in Burma during World War II, there were a lot of these strong female characters that you created for different audiences. And I wanted to ask you, did you create them? Did you run across them? How did you research them and find them? Or was it not a process of research? I can't imagine it wouldn't be. Definitely a lot of research. But having spent my life literally, you know, doing theater and playing several strong parts, the dialogue, the personality of the women just talked to me. They talk to me all the time. And I think I'm writing one thing and then they go, no, you're not. You're going to write this about this over here. And they generally take over (laughs) the process. But for me, as strong women are vital for several reasons. The counterpart, you have to have strength with balance in minor historical fiction. But 
strength with balance to me is very important because I think a strong woman brings out other strong characters. And it's a lesson in giving and staying with your fortitude to get your projects done and to do things. And that's why I think that they're very important, especially now for all these younger women to have something to look forward to. The younger women have something to look forward to. Absolutely. Denise, how involved was your father in this process? How instrumental was he and his experiences to your storytelling? My father, he was in one year before Pearl Harbor. In fact, he was just about to get out. He had enlisted. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And he told me he thought, oh, that's just not good. And sure enough, he says now, he used to say, I did four years of overtime. So he was in for five years. And first he was sent up on the Alcan because they needed to make that connection immediately to get the soldiers up through the Alaska area. And then he was sent to Burma. You're absolutely right. And I have some of the letters that he sent my mother. My parents said they didn't fight the first two years of their marriage. They couldn't because dad was in the jungles of Burma, which is the family joke. I admired him so much for everyone who served at that point in time. And he loved the Chindits and he loved the Indian troops that he worked with in the jungles. He was a second lieutenant in the Signal Corps. So that mm -hmm. means he had to have people above him protecting him while he was working the communications. He told this interesting story. When he first arrived, they just had tents on the ground. And he learned quickly, you don't just put your feet in your boots. He said he woke up and the ground was moving and it was all these different colored frogs. And he went to put his feet in it and it squirmed his, oh, his boot when he put his foot in and he turned it upside down and there was some frogs in his boots as well. They insisted that they were put on platforms, correct? Because he brought home a... 15-foot python skin. He was writing to my mother and he said, just a minute, Harriet. The snake was coming up between his legs and he went out and he oh. shot it. And he... <laughs> I used to unfold it for show and tell. You can imagine what that was like. Oh, I can totally imagine. And I've heard these stories before of frogs in the boots and leeches stuck to your foot while you've been wearing the boots. And so I can just begin to imagine. Now, obviously, you talked about doing all of this research. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier, Denise, was that there were some miracles that happened and that were uncovered during your process of research. Can you share what some of those were? Yes. I believe when a book wants to be written, the information finds you. There was a Station S, very secretive station on Bainbridge Island in Washington State. And it was very close to the Naval Yard, Bremerton Naval Yard. They were decrypting the Japanese codes there. Well, it had been purchased by a family and it had been handed down, you know, it had been sold four times. So a friend took me up there and I'm peeking through the bushes to take my picture and I hear the tires behind me and I turn and it's the owner. And so I handed her my card and I said, oh, excuse me, I'm writing this book. And she said, do you want to come inside? 
So I was able to go inside a building that no one's been able to access for years for research. Another one that was really telling was one time I was taking a Zumba class. This woman came up to me and showed me that they had taken an old article for Pearl Harbor Day and they had reposted part of this interview of a gentleman who had served in Burma and had come home and they had, the Japanese newspaper had asked them, what was it like to serve and to come home and then be amongst the Japanese? And it was my father. They had a four hour interview of my father that our family didn't even know existed. Another time I'm interviewing a spar, wax wave spars. Spars mm-hmm. were the females of the Coast Guard and they only existed during World War II. And talk about strong women, they were incredible. So I'm interviewing a spar and she said, what's your name again, dear? And I said, Denise Frasino. And I thought, oh heavens, you know, she's elderly and she probably isn't gonna remember anything. And she said, oh, that's right, Joe Frasino. And I said, yes, he was my father. And he wrote for the newspaper and she said, oh no, no, dear. And she pointed and I turned around and I'm sitting under a painting of my grandfather's that we did not know existed. My goodness. Yes. And she ended up giving it to me. And I had a strong, you know how you have strong feelings about things, Renita. And I thought, well, I've told her no, but I better go get it. And I picked it up on Thursday, right before I left for Hawaii to go do some more research. And unfortunately, she passed that Monday. Oh, dear. I'm sorry to hear that. That is one of the hardest things about what has happened in this portion of my life is you interview and you, you get so intimate and they tell you all of these things that happened to them and then they're gone. And that's been very, very hard because you just fall in love with them, you know? I can only begin to imagine and storytelling in general and life is so bittersweet. I mean, I honestly believe that the more you have lived, the more experiences you have, the more stories you have to offer to the world. But you're absolutely right, is sometimes when you're ready to unleash them, you're at a senior age, and then it's a matter of time before you're gone. Which is really why this work that you do, that we all do, storytelling is so, so important because if you don't capture these stories, they're just going to vanish along with the people that created them. So it seems like your father, your grandfather, the Frisinos had these illustrious careers which is fascinating to hear about and fascinating that they would unravel in other people's stories. Now, I have to ask you, your work is historical fiction. The tone of the stories is what? Because you have quite the illustrious career as an actress and as a comedy actress. You used to open for Robin Williams. I cannot help but throw that in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That was, we did improv at the comedy store. Yes, I was part of a group that did the improv when he was actually Mork at the time. That's how long ago it was. My favorite, and I know that I speak for plenty out there. It was just a wild time, as you can imagine, because it was pretty free-flowing, and he was a character bar nun and so talented, just incredible. Was he part of your story process for the Orchids trilogy at all? 
even though your association with him might have been in earlier years? In the sense that you can't just write, in my opinion, can't just write about war. I want it to have many levels, like a symphony. So I'm trying to insert humor in there too, because without the darkness, you know, you need the light. Can't just have all darkness in a book, I don't think. And so humor is essential, and you do that. So I think humor needs to be in these types of books as well. So I've created some characters that are not outlandish, but bring a sense of humor to it through their actions. Yes, that's exactly what I was looking for. So I haven't read the book yet, although I can't wait to get my hands on them, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Thank um, you. I am imagining that these are not humorous fiction per se, but there is definitely humor in the stories. And I can't wait for the fiction portion of this episode. We actually hear you read one of these stories that you've already written. Do you have any ideas in mind? Yes, I do. I have. I will probably do a reading out of the very first book, Orchids of War. The um, FBI agent, he's a pretty dark, shady character, so I might pick one of his when he first meets Billy, who is Billy O'Shaughnessy, who is the lead. And she does represent my mother's era because they, boy, they love to dance, but they were hard workers as well. You know, they, mm. they really were. And think of what they went through. It's like these women today over in the war-torn areas what they're going through, the strength they're having to exhibit, and yet they need to find love and humor. So, Denise, how is the third and final book of the trilogy progressing? Because I know you're right in the smack dab in the middle of that. Speaking of which, I once, to tell the truth, once the war broke out, you know, in Ukraine, I stopped because I have had so many people tell me about their first kill or what happened or who they shot and things, and most of them had never told their stories. I would not allow any of the family members into the interviews because they wouldn't tell what actually happened to them. So it was just one-on-one, -on -one, me alone with them for three hours or longer. So the book three now, I've gotten over that hump and I'm back and the character Jack is talking to me again. And that was because I just spent three days researching the Japanese trying to attack India when they were attacking India. Mm -hmm. And I just spent three days researching that one. And all of a sudden, Jack started talking to me again. I'm like, okay, good. Here we go. So it's coming along. But it's such a testy subject matter that I make myself get down here and write. But still, it's, it's not always pleasant. Yes, yes. I know full well that whole Japanese invasion of India. I've heard many, many stories about oh, that on, love to hear from them. my home front. Yes, I we'll bet. have to share an exchange. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I'm thrilled to hear that the third book is progressing. We are going to link to the first two books in the show notes for sure. But tell our readers, Denise, where else they can find your work, links, social media, anything you would like to share. I have my webpage is simply my name www.deniseforcino.com. However, I just acquired one that I'm building, a new one that is World War II Interviews. 
And my plan for that is, as time allows, I'm going to be placing portions of all of these 50 interviews up on World War II interviews so that I get to share the experiences of these men and women so they're never forgotten. I think that is such a fabulous idea. I have a historical fiction book in the works, and I'm going to connect with you offline, Denise, because I think we should do a roadshow to schools and colleges that are studying World War II stories and go talk to them about these great interviews that you've done and the great work that you're writing and maybe some of my work too. Oh, I would love that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. With a little bit of stand-up comedy thrown in for good measure. <laughs> I think that would be fun. It. All right, Denise, thank you so much for being a guest on the True Fiction Project today. I cannot wait to listen to your story. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. I look forward to us connecting in the future and getting a road show going. Maybe we should just start selling tickets right now. $1.95. $1.95. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> $1.95. Whoever wants in, please uh, email us right now. <laughs> oh, good heavens. That was Denise Frasino. She is the author of the Books of the Orchids trilogy about these dynamic women in World War II. She is an actress, a writer, director, producer of various film and video. And I am your host, Renita Hora. This is the True Fiction Project. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. This is a reading from Orchids of War, the first book of my Orchids trilogy. What I'm going to start with now is a scene where we're introduced to Jack, who is the FBI agent. And we've already met Billy, who is our heroine. Billy raced across the campus. Her mother had kept her talking far too long into the night, subtle sabotage for today's competition. She wondered if her mother and Ray had contrived the events of the last night to be certain her brain became dull and tired. But her eagerness propelled her up the stone steps of Suzalo Library on the University of Washington campus. She paused long enough outside the tall wooden exterior doors of the Gothic-style building to take off her engagement ring and slip it into her purse. Not certain whether the rules precluded an engaged woman, she decided not to take any chances. She scurried up the grand stairway, attempting to soften the reverberating sound of her shoes on the stone. As she reached the third floor, her instructor, Professor Fujihara, 
approached her just outside the reading room. For you, special power for winter, and for heat this summer in my beloved Japan, use it wisely. He handed her a long, thin object encased in purple silk. She worked the loop over the small Natsuki, hand-carved in the image of a dragon emerging from an egg. The black lacquer base of the fan slid out, and she regarded the sea-blue edges of the stiff-folded paper. Surprised and delighted, she snapped the fan open. Three dragons danced across the paper. The largest creature, angry and gray, rose above the blue swirls of the ocean. She waved it through the air as Auntie Katsuko had taught her. Professor Fujihara smiled. Go, you will do well. And after you have won and are heading to my homeland, I will have you visit my family and bring them gifts from America. As she tucked the fan back inside the silk shield, her eye caught movement of a door closing across the hall. When she turned back to thank her professor, she saw only the top of his bent head as he hurried down the long stone steps. The proctor showed her to her seat toward the back of the spacious reading room. Billy looked up at the high arched ceiling where ornate chandeliers of black wrought iron and golden glass hung suspended from long chains. She bowed her head in silent prayer below the glow of the tranquil stained glass windows, then placed her fan on the wooden table next to her purse. Determined, she picked up the pencil that would help her decide her fate. Her eyes focused on the two objects before her, the purple silk casing that symbolized all of her hopes of visiting Japan and her brown leather purse concealing the family engagement ring steeped in old society. The competition had begun before the test was placed before her. Jack Huntington crossed the hall to the test room with his assistant David following. They slipped silently into the shadows at the rear of the long room and stood observing the backs and bent heads of the anxious competitors. Jack had arranged with the professor that the test be administered to these twelve hand-selected students. He had thought the competitors were ten men and two women. The professor had proclaimed Billy as the head of the class, but Jack had mistaken her name for that of a man's. A delightful surprise. From his first impression of her confident attitude, he breathed easier, pleased to have Billy among the other competitors. Jack ticked off their names in his head as he sensed the students' nervousness like a hum, reverberating and swirling through the air. He had insisted on the placement of the twelve long tables, with each participant sitting facing front. The two other women, Phyllis and Ruth, sat strategically below the long-hanging lights, easy to observe. However, Billy sat in the back, dimly lit. Stealthily, he started down a side aisle, keeping his bad eye, his right one, in as much shadow as possible. In their earlier conversations about the selection of the competitors, David had tended toward Ruth, who sat in the front row, her heavy chest barely concealed by the low cut of her blouse. Jack smirked. Ruth, with her revealing attire, was certainly more to David's personal liking. Phyllis, who occupied the seat in the third row, had a twitch, and upon closer examination, her caked-on makeup barely concealed the scars from her acne. 
the nine men who rounded out the other contestants were of no interest to him. He headed to the back of the room where he remained in the dark, observing Billy. Her short-sleeved summer blouse exposed long arms. Her hands steady as she quickly worked through the answers. She appeared lithe and athletic, which only added to her qualifications. She looked to be a bit taller than he would have liked, but her legs were long and muscular with good ankles. A plus. Jack circled one more time like a shark just off in the perimeter. He had to be certain. So much depended on his choice. When he stepped into the light, he stood above Billy's table. He reached for the purple silk object. Before he had it off the table, Billy's deep blue eyes snapped in his direction, unfaltering, daring. She did not flinch at the black patch that covered his right eye or the slight scar that christened his skin above and below the patch. He watched her intently and she returned his stare. The hand she held out to retrieve her object had no ring that bound her to another. He let the fan fall and she caught it before it hit the hard wood. He turned and headed for the door with the irritating David at his heels. Elated, Jack pushed through the ornate door into the hall. The girl with the sea-blue eyes emerged his winner, pretty, smart, and fearless. He smiled. She seemed outstanding in all aspects, and by nightfall he would know everything about Miss Billy O'Shaughnessy. The purple object had made the choice for him. Unfortunately, she would not win the competition and the professed trip to Japan. He would see to that. Billy stopped at the base of the library steps, letting the sun's warmth relax her shoulders. She craved the taste of salt water and the fine mist it left on the body after a long swim in the chilling water. But her father's home in Dye's Inlet beckoned from far away. For now, Lake Washington would just have to do. She hurried across the campus, past Frosh Pond, as it had been dubbed due to the fact that so many freshmen landed in its waters. The Olmsted brothers had designed the fountain as the original centerpiece of the Alaskan-Yukon-Pacific exhibition of the 1909 fair, only to have the students find another use for its glory. <laughs> Heading down the road that ran beneath a bridge, she emerged by the stadium where Ray would be waiting. At the thought of his smile, Billy felt her heart lighten and her step quickened. Jack stood at the window and watched the fleeting figure of Billy her skirt flowing with her sure, quick movements. He remembered how she had eloquently maneuvered the fan in the hallway before the test. She was part gazelle, part butterfly, and sheer perfection for his plan. He turned in motion for Professor Fujihara to sit, watching the older Asian's face set in distrust and anger. He contemplated why the professor had not previously presented Billy as a young, beautiful woman. Fujihara had wanted to protect her. Jack would have to lie to the professor, assure him his star pupil would be safe. He had to gain the older man's trust, break through the reserve if he were to glean all that he could about Billy. Immense responsibility rode on this scheme he had concocted. <laughs>
Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.